0: locum tenants to pay off your student debt why the heck not find out how you can use locums to your advantage after our intro residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation but it truly doesn't have to be that way if you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve come hang out with this money nerd no long hours or sleepless nights just you me and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. Really, really excited you guys are all here. And if you could use locums to pay off all of your student debt or mortgage debt, car debt, heck, any type of debt, would you do it? I hope all of you said yes. Otherwise, the planner in me died a little bit. Well, I have on Dr. Kathy Carroll, who's both an MD and a CFA, besides those incredibly impressive credentials. She's a good friend of mine and Taylor's. And if you've been to any of the meetups with our meetup or the physician bloggers or other finance podcasters out there, you likely have probably seen Kathy there and probably had a great chat with her and walked away inspired to take control over your finances. And not only is she here to talk about her story of using locums to pay down every ounce of debt that she had. But since this recording, she's actually started writing for us at financialresidency.com. She's going to be taking the lead on our real estate investing content, specifically investing in multifamily syndications. She's been widely successful in investing in real estate. And she's finally opening the doors to show us how she does it and to learn more about it, but also how you can do it alongside of her. And we get to see that part of Kathy that can truly motivate all of us to do better with our finances and if you're looking to pursue locums yourself she gives you some good reasons and one of her couple of reasons that she's been doing is to really focus on time with her family the commitment to do better with her own money and to pay off her student debt the sponsor of this episode well they aren't really a sponsor it's just a really great entity a great charity that I want to highlight and it's Give More Hugs. Give More Hugs is our charity of choice over here at Financial Residency. We had the founder on last year around this time, Chris McGilvery, who's one of us. He's married to an amazing physician and overall he's one of the kindest human beings that I've ever met. They're doing some amazing things at Give More Hugs by serving underprivileged children, by giving them the resources to share in a lifelong love of learning reading and creativity. They work with students and teachers at title one schools to provide those resources and facilitate a positive learning community. They support students who need educational materials by giving them, you know, books and basic school and art supplies, backpacks, and just words of encouragement to help students reach their potential. And so with giving Tuesday being tomorrow, we wanted to show some huge support So I'm encouraging everyone, if you're going to give any donations out to give, give more hugs, some consideration and to help them achieve their goal. You can go to financialresidency.com slash hugs, H-U-G-S and donating any amount that you can, even $5 would help. Financial residency will be matching donations and we really appreciate anything you can do to help those little kiddos out. All right, let's get going, and I hope you guys enjoy the show with Kathy. Kathy, thank you so much for being here. Excited to have you.
1: Happy to be here. Thank you.
0: So for those that don't know, this is the first guest I have had actually recording in the quote-unquote studio live with me. So thank you for the honor of coming in and doing this with me live. Thank you. This is going to be fun. So today we're going to talk about a couple different topics. It's really A interesting thing that when you have a physician that also is a CFA and is brilliant in the financial space. Yes, you're brilliant in the financial space. So we're going to talk about a couple different topics. And the first one that I want to go into is you are kind of an expert with locums. Mm -hmm. You've been doing it a long time and you used it to pay off your student debt. So why don't you just take us through that whole story and how maybe someone could be wanting to use locums to pay off their student debt.
1: All right. Well, I left med school and residency with about $160,000 in student debt, which at the time was the typical loan. I know it's not anymore. Uh, I started out working for a large HMO that starts with a K. It was a good job. It paid well. But the problem was the taxes were brutal. I'm in California, so I have the sunshine tax. So by the time I got my paycheck, although it was large, there wasn't a whole lot left. And I realized that, you know, after paying for a nanny, which was a necessity with my hours, and after the taxes, that it was going to take forever to pay off my student loans. I was very familiar from my previous days in finance about the dangers of interest, and I wanted it paid off fast, so I realized I needed to do something different. About that time, I decided to leave hospital's work and do primary care. I was trying to find something a little more chill, which... Primary care isn't, as all the primary care doctors can tell you, but that's another show. So I went to work for the VA down in San Diego. Now, the VA, although the hours weren't bad, the pay was not very good. So my lifestyle was a little bit better. But again, I realized I've got these loans. I'm in a high cost of living area. I need to get rid of this as quickly as humanly possible. I'd heard of locums in residency. I didn't know anybody that did it. I didn't know anything about it. But I was curious, and I knew a couple of the other VA docs, like I'd heard, had uh, done some locums. So I just randomly went online. I Googled locums, called the first one I found. I was very lucky. My first gig turned out to be probably one of the best gigs I would ever have. I just didn't know it at the time. So they made me an offer for a job up in Northern California. I'd have to fly up there. They covered my hotel, my airfare, my car, and then I would get paid per hour for a 12-hour shift. So I started doing, you know, two days here, three days there on my my off weekends, my holiday weekends with the VA. And it was actually fantastic because what I discovered is the taxes as a 1099 are totally different than the taxes as a W-2. I got hooked up fairly early on with a good accountant who helped walk me through that. And I just had so much more money left uh, from a locum shift than I did from any of my W-2 jobs. So I realized pretty quickly that I could surpass my salary at the VA working just 10 days a month as a locum.
0: Well, that's nice.
1: That was fantastic. But unfortunately, once I had that realization, it was kind of hard to keep working at the VA I figured. knowing I could do that. So unsurprisingly, I gave my notice at the VA after about a year and a half and decided to become a full-time locum tenants physician. I, do, I did have, still have a child, but at the time he was about three or four. So he was kind of at a point in his life where as long as somebody who loved him was around, he was pretty happy. It wasn't all about mom all the time. That's a little bit different now. So what I would do is I would take off for a total of 10 days a month. I would usually break it up. So I would do a three-day run, a five-day run, once in a blue moon, a seven-day run. When I did a seven-day run, we would all go together. My husband at the time was consulting. So we would rent an Airbnb. I would just run it by the locums company and say, hey, instead of the Holiday Inn, can I do an Airbnb? They'd normally be fine with that. Uh, And we would all go up. If it was summertime, my son would go to a local camp and then we would come home together. So overall, that was great. And I was just making more money than I knew what to do with because it paid so much more. I could have made a lot more money, but I chose to limit the number of days I was gone from home. Mm -hmm. So my goal with this was not just to make money. I also wanted to have more free time. But the benefit was that $160,000 loan, you know, within a year and a half, it was gone. That's amazing. Yeah. And once I had that, you know, anchor off my neck, that totally changed my financial situation. Yeah. Also mentally, it's huge. You know, knowing that you're going to work in the morning because you have a loan to pay is very demoralizing. And I was fortunate my loan was not that big compared to what a lot of people are facing now. But once I got rid of that, it totally changed my perspective on work and everything I was trying to accomplish.
0: Yeah. Some people are like, I wish my loan was 160. Mm-hmm. Like our, our average client's 283, 283,000. So, you know, yeah. it's almost double of what you were kind of starting with. But Taylor's was in a similar situation. She did all the right things. Now, mm-hmm. part of it was on her and part of it was me going, hey, remember, you don't need to take out loans for things that you'd, because right. it's going to cost a whole lot more mm-hmm. to pay it back. So she finished with like 120 or 125,000, And we were going to do PSLF for quite some time. So we had all the paperwork. We were like five years in and we decided, look, this isn't going to be for us. In San Diego, we were able to refinance super cheap, pay little payments. And then I was telling you a story earlier, like we used real estate to pay it off, which was part luck and part awesome in that. But I remember like as the spouse of someone who has a ton of debt going to work and be like, oh man, we've got got a lot of payments to make. We're making a dent, but not that big of a dent in it. So yeah, I could imagine what it's like to do that. So most Mm -hmm. physicians would be like, oh, I'm making so much more money. Now I can do all these other things. Mm -hmm. Your background, obviously being a CFA, you're extremely smart. That probably saved you from going like, oh, let's just go out as a family and do these vacations and do these other things that you, did you throw everything to debt?
1: I threw absolutely everything to debt. So, you know, our cars are paid, the student loan is paid, we have no credit card debt. So there is no debt. And I was able to do that because the locums paid so much more. I was making, on average, 50% more doing locums than I could at a traditional hospitalist job. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the taxes were lower. Because what I eventually did is I, I incorporated with the help of an accountant and, you know, learned these are all the things I can deduct. And it's actually a pretty long list when you're working for yourself as a full-time 1099. So on top of the 50% pay bump, my tax rate was, I would say, roughly half. You know, you still pay a lot. I'm still in California, but it was so much better.
0: Yeah. And you can set up like a solo 401k. You can do all these other things. Exactly. You have a lot of
1: options. Had I been single and childless, I probably just would have gone nuts and done 20 shifts a month instead of 10, done that for a year or two and made a ton of money. I know one guy who lives in Las Vegas and he lives in Las Vegas, but he works as a full time locums in different states because Nevada doesn't pay as well. But by living in Nevada, he avoids the sunshine tax, right? But yet that's his primary residence. Yeah, there's so no that's state where he's right. There's no state tax. So he's, you know, he's young, he's single He's making a lot of cash. He travels a lot, but if you don't have any major attachments and you're at that point in your life, it's a fantastic thing to do.
0: Yeah. So now you've got rid of the debt. Mm-hmm. And so now knowing you, you're investing or starting to invest. So mm-hmm. you're making all these extra, all this extra cash on the side. This is obviously your full-time gig, but now you've got kind of a war chest going on. Where did you kind of turn for your investments?
1: Right. Well, I eventually cut back on the locums because my son got older. Mm -hmm. He started to object to mom being gone. So I took a full-time hospitalist job. But, you know, I work seven on, seven off. So on those off weeks, I still do a couple of days. And now that money is just gravy. That's extra money. So the question is what to do with it. So my goal is to semi-retire as soon as possible. It's not that I hate my job, but I would rather do other things and have more free time, right? I think most people would. I have ambitions to learn an instrument, travel, you know, all the same stuff that everybody says. So what I've been doing now with the money from locums is buying real estate, that cash flows. That's my other passion. So right now with that money, I have eight single-family houses, and I'm actually in the middle of picking up three more. We'll see what comes of those. So now those are giving me cash every month in addition to the locums. Mm -hmm. So what I've got is a snowball. You know, I've been trying to teach my son about interest, and I teach him about this snowball that rolls downhill and it picks up steam. So the more locum shifts I do, the more real estate I get, you know, and, of course, 401K and all that, too, the more cash I have coming in. And pretty soon, I'm just not going to have to do any locums at all unless I feel like going. Uh, And then I can cut back my W-2 job and eventually just retire.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've talked about real estate on the show and it's not for everyone. So mm-hmm. it's not, this it's is not the not for end all be all for everyone to do not this. At all. But I'm curious, what kind of real estate are you purchasing? Because there's all sorts of things we've had on from syndications to single family to notes to all sorts of stuff you can do. Mm-hmm. How did you guys kind of jump into the real estate market and where are you investing?
1: So we actually started in the real estate market from the get-go. We just didn't know it. So our very first house was an off-market purchase from a friend of the family who was a physician. And this was long before I even thought about med school. You know, I was like 20. It was a dump. It had a leaky ceiling. Water would pour in. It had knob and tube wiring. The foundation needed to be cranked up. I had a whopping $8,000, which I had from selling my CD collection. You know, those little silver things, not like the CD. At the
0: Half thing. the people listening are like, "What?" I know,
1: I know. I the, know. The folks that are under 30 don't know what I'm talking about. But this is how music used to be stored. Anyway, I sold all those. We sold all our stuff. We scraped eight grand together. I don't know how the, why the bank gave us a loan on this house. They shouldn't have. But we bought this dump in Woburn, Massachusetts. It also happened to be a two-family dump. So we lived on the bottom and we had tenants on the top. We lived in it while we renovated, which I really don't recommend that you do.
0: Yeah, that's a horrible it's, idea. It was
1: awful. I mean, we d- and when I say we renovated, I mean we jacked up the foundation, we pulled down all the drywall, we ripped out all the knob and tube.
0: Oh, you really My went. my
1: dad was a retired electrician, so that saved us a massive amount of money. Yeah, that helps. Yeah, so that helped. So, and then we sold it. When we decided that Boston was just too cold to live in ever.
0: It's um, on the wrong coast.
1: It's totally the wrong coast. My apologies to your East Coast listeners, but I'm sorry, the Left Coast is the best coast. So, We sold that. We came out here. We bought a single family rental in Las Vegas in about 2006. Mm. That story does not have a happy ending. No, not at all. It didn't.
0: I'll tell everyone why. Mm -hmm. So Vegas was one of the fastest growing cities in the US and my whole family's from there. They've been doing real estate there for, I don't want to date my dad, but mom, but 40 plus years. And, uh, As Vegas was growing, there was a lack of housing. Home builders were building as fast as they could. They couldn't keep up with demand, but the demand was going through the roof. So, a starter home ended up hitting up about 340 or 350,000. And by that, I mean like a three bedroom, two bath, like 1,500 square feet, decent area of town. And some people in California are like, that's it. Like, that's amazing. Uh, But people in the Midwest are like, whoa, that's kind of a bit, right? Well, in 2008 and nine, when the whole economy crashed and the real estate market tumbled, those houses that were 350 were now 120. So everyone took a bath and it took the town, honestly, seven or eight years to recover. That was uh, me. I took
1: a bath. Now, fortunately, you know, we didn't put all the money we had made from the sale of our home in Boston into that. We put like a third of it. So we sold that house. We actually sold it to the tenants, but we did lose money, but- I still believed in the fundamentals of real estate. I just realized I was not educated enough in what I was doing. And also 2008 was kind of a bad year for everybody in real estate. So we bought a duplex in Austin. We held that for a few years, but eventually I decided to go back to med school. So we sold the house, liquidated things to help fund the education. So I always meant to get back to it in a bigger way. And finally, once the loan was paid off and I had the income from locums, now I'm able to do that.
0: And so right now, are you guys investing in California? Are you investing Midwest? Where are you guys at?
1: Uh, We're not in California just because it's hard to find things that cash flow here. And I know some people do like to invest for appreciation, but I have learned the hard way that... That doesn't always work out. That's
0: no, a horrible idea. I'd a horrible never idea. invest for appreciation. I mean, no. you might as well go play blackjack.
1: Exactly. Like- <laughs> that's that's gravy. So now my, my philosophy yeah. is I will only buy things with cash flow. And if they also appreciate, great. So we invest in two places right now. We're in Huntsville, Alabama, which a lot of people may never have heard of. It's known as the Rocket City. And then we're also in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. We have some syndications as well, and the syndications are all in Texas.
0: Got it. Yeah, we've had uh, Vina Jetty on from Enzo Multifamily talking about syndication. So if you want to learn more about that, you guys should check out the two shows that we did with Vina. And then I just had Dustin Heiner on talking about investing in single family rentals. So a couple of guests have been on to talk about those type of investments. So we don't have to go too much in detail with that. But well, because it is so rare to have someone with an MD as well as a CFA, I'd like to answer two listener questions Mm -hmm. that were called in that I think are fun because your background really goes to both of these. So let's go to our first call in.
2: Hi, Financial Residency. I'm looking for more information about how to compare mortgage lenders. We will be looking for our first home in the near future within six months. And everything we're reading is encouraging us to shop around for a mortgage lender to get the best rate and fee structure. I was wondering if you could provide information on the best way to shop for mortgage lenders, sort of like a how-to. I've noticed that some lenders that we've spoken with will verbally pre-qualify you and have provided itemized fee lists of everything involved in the process based on hypothetical purchase price, etc. cetera. And other lenders will not provide us with any information rates, or fees until we go through the pre-approval process with them. Which leaves us wondering, should we seek pre-approval with multiple lenders and compare at that time and then move forward? Or should we be pre-approved by one company and then find a home that we love and then compare lenders? I'd love more information how to compare mortgage lenders. Thank you.
0: First, thanks for the question. We always like answering these and it's fun that we can do this with a guest here. And if you guys want to ask questions, you can go to financialresidency.com slash question. Or if you again, want to be on our Friday show where we do the kind of like an in-depth assessment, you can do that at financialresidency.com slash form. So Kathy, I'll give you first honors here. Why don't you kind of give her a decent answer to what she's looking for?
1: So I would say there's definitely no harm in talking to multiple lenders. In the initial phase, they're usually just getting your name, your phone number, some basic data. They're not pulling your credit, so you don't need to worry about that. So there's certainly no reason you shouldn't do that, and absolutely you should check around. Different lenders, although the interest rates may not vary that much, the points that they want from you will vary, and the fees can be pretty large. So they should be willing to give you their fee structure up front. It's always going to be an estimate. You're never going to know until further along in the process, exactly what are all the fees, you know, the title fees, the closing fees, the attorney's fees. But you can get a pretty good idea. When they do pull your credit, you know, I wouldn't want to have somebody pull my credit multiple times over a long period of time. But usually if you do that within a short period of time, it will only count as one pull on your credit. Meaning if you go to three different banks and you were to formally go through the qualification process with them, They will pull your credit, but the credit agencies will look at that usually as one inquiry if it's done in a certain time period.
0: Yeah. And every lender should give you that fee breakdown. So like Kathy was saying, like, you know, the principal, the interest, the taxes, the insurance, the escrow fees, all of that stuff, you know, home inspection or appraisal, which please do that. That's very, very, very important. But all of that is their estimates, and those will not change between lenders. Really, when you're pulling lenders, you're looking at what are their interest rates, what are the points required, essentially prepaid interest, what is that, and then what's called like their lender fee or an origination fee? and that's what the actual mortgage broker gets paid for doing this. So I would say typically you're going to be paying like seven hundred and fifty to maybe a thousand or twelve hundred bucks towards that fee by itself. But be careful when you look at different rates, the lowest rate is not always the best deal. And I mean that because if someone's going to give you a note, let's say at 4% and the other one is 4.125 and you're like, well, the lower one wins. Well, there might be points that you have to pay, basically a percentage of your loan that you're trying to take out upfront in order to get that teaser rate And sometimes what they'll do is they'll say, well, you don't actually have to come up with any more cash. We will actually just roll it into your loan. So now you're taking on debt to cover the points that you were supposed to pay. And it ends up not being in your best interest because now you're paying basically the interest on the points and it's kind of ridiculous that that occurs so just be careful a lot of them play games that way and we've fixed lots of clients thought process on this as we're comparing all the different rates it's a it's a common game it, they still disclose it and there's a ton of law around that to make them but it's not in your face obvious
2: no
1: it's really not especially if you're not used to doing this all day long and looking at the numbers you can get very excited when somebody offers you a three percent rate but if you have to pay a bunch of points up front meaning thousands of dollars up front, it's not worth it. You also want to think about how long you're going to live in your home. If you're not going to live in this house that long, well, first of all, maybe you shouldn't buy it, but if you're not going to live in the house that long, the benefits you get from a lower rate is not that large. So it may not be worthwhile to pay those points. Now, if this is your forever home and you are going to live here for the next 30 years, which very few people do, then yes, the points might be worth it
0: and the younger you are the less likely that's to be true so don't think you're going to live in your forever home if it's your first home out of training cuz that doesn't really happen ever ever
1: ever, ever. yeah i don't think Agreed.
0: like i'd be surprised if you're in it 5 years Which, if you're going to buy a primary residence, and we've talked about on the show, this is not an asset. It's the American dream. I totally get it. But you're buying a liability. It's costs you money every month. So don't go for the doctor home right away that everyone thinks that you should buy and that you've maybe been dreaming you should buy. Starter homes are still a good and very viable option for that.
1: Absolutely. I still don't live in a doctor home. I aspire to live in a doctor home one day.
0: Okay, now let's go to our next listener voicemail.
1: Hey, Ryan. Question regarding savings rates. You repeatedly mentioned budgeting 25% of our take-home pay towards increasing net worth. My question is, what percentage of total pay do you recommend allocating towards 401k equivalent retirement accounts for two married interns who are not aggressively paying down debt before saving that 25% of take-home pay? Unfortunately, maxing out these accounts with 38000 in yearly contributions on top of saving 25% of take-home pay seems like an unreasonable strain on lifestyle. What would be a good middle ground to shoot for? We are currently saving 20% of total earnings, including matching contributions, into 401k type accounts and 7% of take-home pay into a high-yield savings emergency fund. Thanks, Ryan. I wouldn't get hung up on the whole saving 25% of your take-home pay. That's not a magic number, 20, 25, 30 what you need to think about is the philosophy behind that. Why do you need to save a certain percentage of your take-home pay, right? Not everybody is trying to fast fire. Not everybody wants to retire tomorrow. There are plenty of people who are perfectly happy practicing medicine, and they plan to practice until they can't walk anymore. I know a couple doctors like that. They're going to code in the hospital and die, and they love that idea. Yep,
0: they're telling you, "I'm going to you're going to wheel me around a. They're going to
1: wheel me. You're going to wheel me out of here, right? And that's totally fine. That's not why you save money you save money and really invest money so that you can have security and freedom everybody has a plan for their life and it almost never works out the way you think right so you have a plan to work until you die but things happen what if you can't what if you become disabled what if your spouse or child becomes disabled what if you just change your mind What if you hit 50 and you have a midlife crisis and you decide, you know, I am meant to sail around the globe and become a professional guitar player? You just can't be sure what's going to happen. I think doctors in particular are very aware of that. You know, you look at your patients, they all had a life plan and it didn't work out because you're taking care of them. So don't hang them up on the percent that you're saving. Think about the reason that you're saving. It's to protect you and it's to give you flexibility.
0: Yeah, and we talk on the show like the 50, 25, 25, right? So the 25% to go to pay yourself first, 50% to fixed expenses, 25% to variable expenses. And I know where this question's coming from. And I wanna say most people that we work with are nowhere close to the 25%. That's the goal to shoot for. If you hit it, if you're already doing it, awesome. If it takes you five years to get there, no worries. Just know that that's the goal you're working towards. And the reason we say that, and we have to give some principle again, just like, oh, save a bunch. Mm -hmm. Well, what's a bunch? So we define it this way because you're going at least 10 years behind the other people you went to college with. Think of maybe your roommate in college that didn't become a physician. Like they started saving at 22 and you're starting to save at 30 or 32 or 34. Whenever you're getting done with all the training you're going through and just hitting that first attending job, you are a decade plus behind. So not only maxing out your 401k or your 403b or your 457 or any of the retirement accounts you have at work is great but you need to be saving an addition and that saving isn't just investing it's also paying down debt so when you say pay yourself you know 25 percent and pay yourself first that can mean additional debt pay down it could mean putting money in your hsa it can mean putting money in your ira it's not just take 25 and put in a taxable account honestly, that's probably the worst thing you could do in the beginning because you have a ton of debt and you have no other savings. It might just mean start an emergency fund and get three months of expenses set aside. So that's what we're referring to. And it's not some hard, fast rule that if you don't and you save 23%, you're screwed and you're never going to retire or be happy. That's not what we're saying, but we have to give some targets and some guidance along the way. Otherwise- if the information was just, hey, save a bunch of money, all of you are going to be emailing in and calling and going like, hey, well, what's a bunch, right? It wouldn't make sense. So as the planners and, and as we've done this and the math works out the way it is, we're not wanting you to fast fire or you know retire early from your career. I actually hate the fire movement piece of that, the RE part of it, especially for physicians because you've taken so long to get where you want to go. Why would you then in five or 10 years decide, uh, I'm going to retire you, was that whole grind worth that no and you, you guys don't get into this to become rich if you did you're, you did the wrong thing especially anyone who basically is earning under half a million dollars like all those subspecialties that you go through all that training to not make that much more and like peds palm
1: <laughs> well peds get paid that's a crime
0: I can pick on Taylor a little bit for Mm -hmm. that, but that was what made her happy. And she didn't do this to be wealthy. Like she did this because she wants to help and she truly loves what she does. So does she need to be retiring early? Like, no, but we do need to be saving money and we do need to be thinking because like you said, anything can happen, right? Exactly. So it was amazing having you here and talking with me and I thank you so much for coming on over and recording in the studio, which is fun. I'm calling it a studio. You can tell them the truth that it's-
1: It's it's a studio. It's just small, but it, it is a studio.
0: We called it, it, it small?
1: Is. It, it is, well, it's, it is a little small. Oh,
0: cutthroat, savage well, over hey, here.
1: In, in Southern California, this is actually an Airbnb. This, so. Yeah,
0: come on. Yeah. I could yeah. rent this thing out. Anyone want to rent a small studio?
1: <laughs> I actually think you could rent it on Airbnb.
0: We probably could, you but could. then I couldn't podcast anymore. And that That's would make true. me very sad. So, well, thank you for being on the show. Where can everyone hear more about you, what you're up to? Because you do have some really fun things that you're working on. And I want people to know because I love what you're doing.
1: I do. I have a website that talks about locums for physicians that are interested in knowing more. It's locumsociety.org. And then I also write a little bit on finance and investing at physiciantycoon.com.
0: So check out those things. They're awesome. And Kathy is also in our groups, So you can also ping her on what she's up to and what she's doing in our community, which you can join at financialresidency.com slash community. All right, it's time for our recap. And there are so many takeaways that I want you to really walk away with, but I'm gonna highlight three main ones that I really like. So takeaway number one, Locums was a great way for Kathy to overcome some financial challenges. She even made up for the time she spent at the VA instead of it at home. And a big takeaway from her about this is that once you get looped into Locums, you can actually feel a lot better about your financial situation.
1: Once I had that anchor off my neck, that totally changed my financial situation. Also mentally, it's huge. You know, knowing that you're going to work in the morning because you have a loan to pay, is very demoralizing.
0: The second takeaway was that Kathy mentioned that there was a significant pay increase and that she was able to throw it all towards her debt, right? The student debt, the car, the mortgage, everything. With more money, why not? Before you know it, you might even be debt-free as well.
1: Our cars are paid, the student loan is paid, we have no credit card debt, so there is no debt. And I was able to do that because the locums paid so much more. I was making, on average, 50% more doing locums than I could at a traditional hospitalist job.
0: And our third takeaway was learning as she went on to invest in real estate, one thing that Kathy cautions is to not invest solely for appreciation. At least that's what she wouldn't do. And come on, that's not actually that smart. That's actually what she said, though.
1: I know some people do like to invest for appreciation, but I have learned the hard way that that doesn't always work out. No,
0: no, it's a horrible idea. I'd a horrible never idea. invest for appreciation. I mean, you no. might as well go play blackjack. Exactly. Like-
1: that's, that's gravy. So now my yeah. philosophy is I will only buy things with cash flow. And if they also appreciate, great.
0: I always love at the end here doing a quick community update. And holy cow, we are already in December. That is crazy. I seriously, I can't believe we're already in December and 2020 is almost here. Some things to know as you continue to grow with the podcast. And one is obviously that we loop you in with the book. It comes out January 15th. It's also insane that the book is almost here and going to be launched in, in all of your hands. I'm so excited. Taylor and I had a great time writing it and we hope all of you love it as much as we did writing it. Reading it cover to cover, you will figure out how to build your own financial plan. It is super cool. And if you're a do-it-yourself guy or gal, you're going to really appreciate the tips that Taylor and I share with you on how you go about creating a plan of your own. It's always good to wage whether you should have a financial planner in your corner or not. Not everyone wants or needs a planner, but I recommend doing what's best for you in your situation. And I know this book is definitely going to help you guys out. Another update is if you haven't heard about or plan to join our financial fellowship community, honestly, where have you been hiding? We've sent out some emails. I mentioned on the show before, uh, financial residency now has an exclusive membership community for those who want a little more guidance in a group coaching environment. The best part of all this is it's super easy to join. It's actually not that expensive to join and Through the course of a year, we will actually build out a financial plan for all of you. Super cool stuff. So if you wanna be a part of the Financial Fellowship, go to financialfellowship.com and learn how you can get involved, because when we open it up next time, I can tell you it's gonna cap out again. We did that insanely fast the first time with our founding members, and I know it's gonna go just as fast again. So make sure you get on our waiting list. All right, everyone, have a great week and I will see you guys on Wednesday. Cheers. Oh, just kidding. We have that actually, that really important disclaimer. I want you guys to be superstars when it comes to your finances, but I don't want you to take advice from me on this show. Use this as an educational tool that gives you general hints around your finances. I can only give advice to clients who I actually work with That I know everything about and I'm guessing you're not one of them and to be honest I don't think you should take advice from anybody on the internet who doesn't know your situation so if you're a physician that's looking for an advisor to help you walk with you on that journey go to physicianwealthservices.com and we can definitely talk about it but until then talk to your legal tax or your financial advisor before you take any
2: action.